Is making sculpture a spiritual act? There's a lot of areas where joy and beauty get left behind. And I wanted to think of it as a radical act. I've taken a lot of risk, but I know what I'm doing and I'm fearless. Welcome to Angel City Culture Quest, where art, social justice, and the environment meet in Los Angeles. I am your host, Melina Paris, and I welcome you to this episode. Hello, and welcome to Angel City Culture Quest. Today, we're talking to Ann Weber. This episode is called No Fear. Anne Weber's Art of Mastering Transitions. Anne Weber is an artist who lives in San Pedro, part of the city of Los Angeles, where the port is. She has been transforming common cardboard boxes into sculpture since 1991. Anne earned a BA in art history from Purdue University and a Master of Fine Art in Sculpture from the California College of Arts and Crafts. Anne's artistry background began with ceramics. After 15 years making functional pottery, she left New York City for California to study with renowned ceramic sculptor Viola Fry at California College of Arts and Crafts in Oakland. In 2018, Anne was awarded a Pollock Krasner grant. Her residencies include American Academy in Rome, Oberfalz Kunstlerhaus in Schwandorf, Germany, International School of Beijing, and the De Young Museum in San Francisco. Anne relocated to Los Angeles after living for 30 years in the San Francisco Bay Area. Good morning, Anne. Hello, Melina. How are you? Very well, thank you. Great. I'd like for a moment to talk about your influences. When you first started working in cardboard in 1991, you said your initial inspiration was Frank Gehry's cardboard chairs. I think that was the wiggle chair, is that correct? Well, he did a variety of, of furniture, and certainly that was one of them. Yeah, it was a, a chair with its base uh, bent into an S shape. Quite an interesting look. And then you had mentioned that because of that, you owed a great debt to Frank Gehry. And a few of the many artists that you're inspired by include sculptors, Louise Bourgeois, Louise Nevelson, and Eva Hess. But your last body of work, titled Pedro Boogie Woogie, influenced by pioneer abstract artist Piet Mondrian, used that iconic yellow, red, and blue from his piece Broadway Boogie Woogie. And much of your work is inspired from your personal life. Now, I want our listeners to know that on our show notes, we're going to give a detailed background of Anne's start in her artistry. So be sure to look at that because it's very interesting and it speaks to a lot of her art in mastering transitions. Now I want to discuss your transition from clay to cardboard. In terms of your work with your cardboard, you said you went from being a functional potter, throwing shapes on the wheel, to throwing abstract shapes, and you were thinking like an artist instead of a functional craftsperson. Can you talk about that transformation from potter to artist? Sure. When I first started graduate school, I had come fresh from New York City, where I was running a production pottery studio in the meatpacking district. And I had really no idea how I was going to switch from 
making functional pottery to creating art. Uh, Viola Fry was using clay as an art form. And there really were very few potter's wheels in the graduate studios at the time. So I had to dig one out of the closet because I was gonna try to make functional pottery, but still sort of transform those cups and bowls and plates into something more abstract by maybe piling them up or doing something different with them. And one of the things that Viola said to me was, go look at some real art, go look at Kandinsky. And so I dutifully went to the library and checked out a book on Kandinsky and I, I propped it in front of the potter's wheel, one of his paintings, and I started to throw the shapes in the painting because I could throw anything. I'd been throwing for 15 years. So that was a eureka moment for me because that was when I started to get away from making plates and bowls and cups to making these strange exotic forms that that I could pile up and and uh, eventually after throwing these forms for a while I started making them in larger shapes in coil built methods using some of Viola's techniques. Wow. And what a feeling when you're just, you're being successful in reproducing what you're looking at out of your own inspiration. That's fascinating. I want to talk a little bit about a wonderful personal story about you by Richard Whitaker, where you spoke about your decision to move to LA. And in it, you spoke about how you built very close and meaningful friendships in the Bay Area, that you also have a great art dealer, and it's a beautiful and stimulating environment, but you also felt you had ex exhausted most of the opportunities in the Bay Area for showing. Yet now, you very recently are in an exhibit at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art titled Art of California, Greater Than the Sum, and the museum has permanently acquired your piece, The Happiest Days of Our Lives. How did you feel about this turn of events just a few years after you left the Bay Area? Richard Whitaker is a remarkable interviewer, and he has been publishing a magazine called Works and Conversations, in which he interviews artists and tells their story and he, he gets you to talk about a lot of personal things that happened to you but I was really excited to be featured in one of his magazines. The story about moving to Los Angeles occurred when I ran into a friend of mine who had been living in San Francisco but had recently moved to Los Angeles and his name is Josh Hagler and he moved with his partner Maya Rusnik, and he said that he had more attention for his work in eight months in Los Angeles than 12 years in San Francisco. And I thought, oh no, I, I've missed the boat. I, I, I feel like I couldn't imagine leaving the Bay Area after I'd been there for 30 years. But then the next day I woke up and I thought, well, I've got 20 years left. I could sublet my studio and just go down and check it out and see if that might happen 
And I called Joni in Santa Monica and said, could I stay with you for a month or two and find a studio? And she said, sure. So I figured I had 20 years left. I was 65 and that that was plenty of time to go down and see for myself if there were as many opportunities as Josh had said. Yeah, about how it felt to have my work acquired by SF MoMA, I feel like it was about time. That was a wonderful experience. Yeah, definitely. And it was an interesting turn of events. You had mentioned your curator had worked really hard showing your work, and eventually all the curators of San Francisco MoMA had come to your sale with the head curator, and it was around that time that this transpired where they actually acquired the piece. And you had mentioned another couple bought a piece of yours and also donated it to the museum as well. It takes a lot of decision-making to decide to bring an artist into the collection of a major museum like SF MoMA. And they have to think long and hard as to whether or not they're going to store your piece for the rest of till eternity or yeah. as long as it's going to last. So one interesting aspect of the decision for SF Moment to decide to acquire a piece of mine uh, had to do with the head curator, who is Janet Bishop. And she said that she was visiting some houses of some friends of mine, and she started to see that my sculptures were in these collections of some friends of hers, mm. mutual friends. And uh, so she thought, I'm going to have to take a closer look at this artist. And my art dealer, Lisa at Dolby Chadwick Gallery, had been courting the museums for quite some time, as she does whenever she has an exhibition of one of her artists. So finally, in 2018, when I had a solo show in the gallery, she got the museum staff to come over and take a look. And the hardest part is to get them to say yes. And after that, they can decide whether to buy your piece directly. But many pieces come into museums because they're donated by a collector. So my art dealer felt that now that they've said yes, the easy part was to find someone to purchase my work and donate it to the museum. And that was April Sheldon and John Casado who are art collectors, and April is an art consultant, interior designer, and she has placed my work in a number of her clients' homes. So she had a soft spot for my work, and she had also purchased some of my work. So she and her husband, John Casado, very generously purchased the piece and immediately donated it to the museum. That's wonderful. And the Oakland Museum had accepted one of your large cardboard pieces as well. And the Berkeley Museum and the Crocker Art Museum each took a drawing of yours. But most recently, the Long Beach Museum of Art, Barnsdall Art Park, Los Angeles Craft Contemporary Museum, and Torrance Art Museum have all had a part of your work that you've been doing in recent years. And of course, San Francisco. Now, next, you had firmly established yourself in San Francisco, but I want to talk a little bit about the transition and the hard work that you did in getting to know people and getting to know the artist community here. Can you elaborate a little bit about after you moved down here and how that happened for you? 
Well, Josh and Maya Brusnick were correct that there were incredible opportunities down here. And we have to remember that San Francisco is a town of 800,000 people. And Los Angeles is Los Angeles County it has 8 million people. So there are so many galleries and museums and arts centers. And it just was a wonderful uh, opportunity for me to show my work. And one of the things that appealed to me about Los Angeles was that the Broad Museum was just opening, Hauser and Worth, the International Gallery was a huge complex. There were several other major galleries that were opening here, and it just felt like a really vital and alive arts. And I started to meet people really quickly. And partly it was because I found a great studio in San Pedro that was owned by Eric Johnson, who's a very prominent sculptor in the Los Angeles area. And so he rented me some space in his space and introduced me to a lot of the artists around San Pedro. And then every weekend, I would go to a lot of different openings and I would meet people there. And I was so excited to be here. Los Angeles, because of the movie industry, it felt like the artists that I met, they wanted to introduce me to their art dealers or another artist. Or they wanted to take me to a studio and show me so-and-so's art or have me come and see their own art. So it Lots just started idea. to blossom. And I also have a history of having dinner parties, and I've been doing this for decades. And I like to invite curators and artists and writers and people that I don't necessarily know, but I will send out an invitation and then I'll include the guest list and their websites. So even though people didn't know me, they were interested in getting to know the writers or the curators and, and uh, curators and writers were interested in particular artists because I tried to choose people that were doing well and that would benefit from this. That's a wonderful idea and bringing people together and the networking like you mentioned. And, and you've been to one of those I, dinner parties I was just going to say, they're so fun. <laughs> and the, the food is delicious. The beverages are delicious. And I think it's a wonderful idea because all these people are circulating and it's wonderful to meet more people in the areas that you work in and find inspiration in. And I like to go around the table and have people sort of introduced at the beginning so that somebody uh, might bring a book that they're working on or a show announcement or a catalog so that before we sit down, you're not just talking to the person next to you. We tend to have uh, one conversation. Usually it's about eight people. So if you know a little bit about somebody or you've checked out their website, then I have found that there is a real cross-pollination. As an example, uh, one dinner party, I invited Tulsa. She's the editor at Artillery Magazine, and she also brought mm. Ezra Jean Black, who is one of the writers. And at that dinner party, I invited Amy Erickson, who's the director of Angelscape Cultural Center. And I, I really wanted the Cultural Center to start buying advertisements in Artillery Magazine, and it happened. And so I feel like that's just one example of how we can support each other in very real ways. 
Yeah, that's amazing. And quite a great connection that you established. You also mentioned Angels Gate Cultural Center as one of the reasons you love San Pedro, and you've been associated with them for some time now. You did speak a lot about earlier when you first moved here that you fell in love with the area, in addition to the fact of being able to work here because of the surroundings. Can you talk about that a little bit? And then I want to talk more about Angels Gate. Well, I had never heard of San Pedro. And in fact, when I first moved down here and was staying with my friend, I had a list of a lot of different places to visit in Los Angeles. So every day I jump in my car. I could not have moved here without Siri and GPS <laughs> to guide me around the city. I was never afraid to go anywhere because I knew she would never get me lost. So I would visit all these different places. And then one time I was at a show, it was called The White Show. And it was at the loft at Liz's on La Brea. Mm -hmm. And there was an artist in the show and his work was, I, I loved his work, Eric Johnson. I said, oh, I have a vague recollection of crossing paths with him. So I looked him up and, and he said, yeah, I said I was from the Bay Area. He remembered my work. And so he said, why don't you come out to San Pedro? And so I did. And I couldn't believe it. it. His studio was only four blocks from the waterfront. After I visited him and I started driving around in a bigger circle like I do when I'm trying to get to know an area. And I found that the ocean was like 10 blocks away and the marina was so close. And I also couldn't believe when I was driving on the 110 all the refineries and all the cranes and this really incredible muscular landscape. But then there was so much beauty because you drive a little bit farther and there's the Frank Geary building, the Cabrillo Marina. There was the beautiful beach. The Pacific Ocean was right there. Yeah. I, I thought I died and gone to heaven. When I was thinking about where I would be in Los Angeles, I thought I'd be in a strip mall or I'd be in some building downtown at some high rise old building in the garment district right, in, right. A, in a concrete jungle. I never imagined that I'd be living on the coast. So I'm very grateful to Eric Johnson because he rented me a great studio space in his building. And it just, I was able to move in with an empty studio. And because I had left everything up in the Bay Area. Yeah, that was a very big leap. And especially at that time in your life. And obviously you had faith and that's a wonderful thing. This is part of your fearlessness. And there was a quote that you mentioned. Do you remember it by President Obama? Oh, yes. He says, I know what I'm doing and I'm fearless. Yeah. So that's that's one of the benefits of being a little older. Although I, <laughs> I can tell you, I've, I've taken a lot of risk throughout my life. And I think that that's one of the things that artists tend to do. Right. Well, they have to. That's, that's kind of the nature of the work, I think. Now, let's talk a little bit about Angels Gate Cultural Center. You originally thought you'd work in your 550-square-foot garage, and you had the storage unit in the Bay Area, but ultimately it was expensive and you didn't like working in the garage. 
Uh, I'll let you tell the rest of that. Well, first of all, I had to make a decision because the studio that I was living in in the Bay Area is called the 45th Street Emeryville Artist Cooperative. Mm-hmm. And 56 artists own three buildings. And there's 56 studios in these buildings. Emeryville is right between Oakland and Berkeley. We cooperatively own these buildings, which means that we have a board. We have bylaws, and then we have a board of directors, which is made up of us, and we're serving on the board to make decisions about things that come up. And one of the bylaws says that you can sublet your studio for one year, and you can have a one-year extension. So you can leave for up to two years, but it has to be either art-related or taking care of family. So I had two years to decide if I was going to come back to my studio. If I didn't come back to my studio, I had to sell it. Mm -hmm. And when you sell it, you sell it for the same price that you did when you're going so that we always have studios that are way 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 below market value so that their artists can have an opportunity to have a good space that's wonderful so one of the things about san pedro that i realized is not only was the the original space that i rented from eric affordable i had 800 square foot studios great big windows in the front. And I started to look around and think that maybe we'd be able to buy something here. And the more I looked, the more I realized that the prices were reasonable. Mm -hmm. So uh, after about a year and a half of being in San Pedro, I found a house between, uh, it was below Gaffey. And the Mm -hmm. closer you are to the and the less expensive the houses were because people tend to like to live up and up above the gaffy right. and looking down on everybody else. <laughs> so I was very fortunate to find this great old 1920s house that had a two-car finished garage apartment above so that I could rent it out and help pay for my mortgage. So um I thought everything was great, but I I did have this, as you said, a storage unit that I was paying for. And I decided that I didn't like working in the garage. It felt too pokey. I was aware that Angel's Gate had uh, studios for artists, and that was only about 10 blocks from my house. And so I put my name on the list. And when a little teeny tiny studio became available, I took it. And it was only about the size of my dining room, about 150 square feet, but it had these windows that looked out and you could barely see the sunset through another building. But uh, it was amazing that on one side of the building was the ocean and on the other side was the port. And this is land that's high up on a hill. It is sacred land. And I fell in love with the, the, the place. And I'm also very grateful to be there. There's exhibitions. We also have classes there and that, that the public can come and learn ceramics, printmaking, drawing, ukulele, Polynesian dance. It's an organization that's become very close to my heart. At the present, I am on the fundraising committee. So I do a lot to support this organization. Yeah, it's a great contribution. If you're just tuning in, we're speaking with San Pedro artist and sculptor, 
and Weber. Thank you for listening. You're very active in Rome, where you have the residency, and you mentioned that you're on their development committee as well. So you have this other side, you have the artistic side, but then you have this sort of very hands-on practical side too. Yes, I, th I think that that's another great way to network, for one thing. You, whenever you don't, when, when you give your time and volunteer, it always comes back double and it's a way to participate in helping other organizations that do a lot for artists. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the American Academy in Rome, and that is an organization that's been around for over 100 years. They are the ones that give the Rome Prize. I have yet to win the Rome Prize, but I was a finalist once oh. out of 450 uh, submissions. It was narrowed down to eight, and they only chose four. They didn't choose me, but I have been going for uh, the last eight years, I've been three times for one month through another program called the Visiting Artists Program. So being in Rome and being at the American Academy with the prize winners that are there in all fields from scholars to composers to artists to landscape designers, it is one of the richest experiences that I've ever been in. And so I have a great debt to them as well. It opened up my eyes in so many ways that I feel very connected to them as well. That's wonderful. I just want to grab onto one thing. You said it opened your eyes in so many ways. Can you speak to maybe one of those ways? Well, I think that it's the intellectual pursuit that I never felt I had been exposed to. I was raised in the Midwest. I, I'm from Evansville, Indiana, uh, which is where I spent most of my life. I never went to museums. I never went to the symphony. I have three sisters. My parents are very conservative as well as my sisters. And so I felt that being exposed to intellectual minds and, and writers was an area that I really didn't have much experience with, but sitting at the table with these extraordinary minds, open mind to the mm -hmm. fact that I can read Homer, I can go into that library and type in, is making sculpture a spiritual act and find myriad books and information about that. And wow. it, it was just such an extraordinary, Ordinary experience and also have been studying the history of Rome and studying Italian for the last 10 years. So that was another area that I just added just immensely to my experiences. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That sounds fabulous. I would be so intrigued to hear more about that. It's an ancient culture. And as you said, there's so much wealth of knowledge that we may have to have a part two for that. <laughs> because it really does sound fascinating and being around all those people. And I like that idea about, how did you say, is creating sculpture a, a spiritual act? Is that what yes. you, Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I want to explore that more. Well, you just get Bernini and you know that there's got to be something really, really, really deep in the way that he works and how, where his ideas come from. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Now, getting to your art, the way you 
you were describing it in your statement, you said that one of the unique qualities of your art is the psychological component, uh, neither entirely representational nor abstract, but something in between. I want the viewers to bring their own associations to the artwork. Now, the forms that you work with are simple ones, cylinders, and circles. You said that the sculptures are symbolic of male and female forms and the natural world and that you use architecture and art historical references to evoke memory, relationships, and morality in your sculpture. So in terms of evoking memory and morality, you've made three significant large pieces in response to major events. They are titled, uh, You Don't Need a Weatherman to Know Which Way the Wind Blows, and of course, Happiest Days of Our Lives, which San Francisco MoMA acquired, and Pedro Boogie Woogie. Can you talk about the inspiration behind each of those pieces? Well, let's pick one. I think I'm going to choose Happiest Days of Our Lives. And I will give you an example of how I work. I started making these sculptures based on the graffiti that, that I found all around me. And the more I researched the graffiti, I realized that it it's, has a deep history. And in Los Angeles in the 1930s, there were a lot of people moving up from Latin America. And as with all immigrants, you need to form special communities to support each other. And it was more in the way of social clubs that people would get together, young people, and they would form groups. I, I hate to use the word gangs because that is so pejorative, but each group would be in a certain neighborhood and they would write their names on the wall in Gothic ripped. Mm -hmm. And that sort of was the origins of a lot of street art and graffiti art. And it's very different from graffiti in New York City, where I've lived and also in the Bay Area. And so I was really fascinated with the script of it. And I also felt that it was a way of identifying with your community. And it was of communicating with each other. And so I took some photos of some graffiti and they're more like artworks or murals right. in San Pedro. And I started creating these forms. I would cut them out in cardboard and then I would cut out one shape and then there'd be the other shape next to it, the negative space. So then that would be another continuation. So ultimately I did about 25 pieces that were freestanding. Then I decided I'm going to put these on the walls. They're going to be more like relief. So I would cut out the shapes and then I would cut out another shape next to it. And that was the armature. And then I did about 40 of those. I'm still thinking about doing more. And then when I put them on the wall, they reminded me, of course, of the graffiti, but they also looked like Egyptian hieroglyphs. And I wanted to communicate something more than the graffiti in my neighborhood. I wanted them to be about communication, how we're all connected. And because it's not my material, I feel like 
you can't really take something that is not from your culture and make it your own, but you can also steal ideas from other people and then transfer it into your own interpretation of something else. So the other thing that was happening as I was doing this is starting around 2016, as we had those years that were so difficult with he who shall not be named. And and there was so much that talk about the wall. And I I felt like in, in many ways, my work is not political at all. But I thought, well, I wanted to make some kind of a reference to the wall because this was the first time I've done a a big series of of wall work. And so I looked up the wall on the Google Mm -hmm. and I came up with Pink Floyd's album called The Wall. Right. And Pink Floyd had such a huge impact on my life. I was born in 1950. So I was part of the revolution in so many of the 60, uh, 68, 70, 72. And uh, Pink Floyd, and oh, just can't even begin to name all the musicians that, that were so important in that yeah. time. So I started yeah. to look at the titles of the songs that came out in, in that album. And one of them was The Happiest Days of Our Lives. And I thought, well, even though we're going through this political turmoil, I felt that these could be the happiest days of our lives. There's a lot of areas where joy and beauty get left behind. And I wanted to think positively and think of it as a radical act. And I do want to mention, because I'm going to share a picture of one of your works, You Don't Need a Weatherman to Know Which Way the Wind Blows. It is two spheres with a cylinder in between. And at first glance, it seems black and white, but no, you've got color in there in in some of the areas in between the white cardboard strips. It's a beautiful piece. And how tall is that? Uh, that piece is about, it's probably about eight feet tall, maybe a, maybe eight and a half feet. Okay. I've got pieces that are 16 foot tall oh and they were done 20 years ago. So I've been doing major work all the way through my career, Melina. I did a series of work during the pandemic, during the really, really difficult period. And that piece was part of the series called Pedro Boogie Woogie also felt like I was sort of continuing in a body of work that I had started in 2019 following a show that I had at Harbor College. And I felt that my work was not addressing the political nature of either the pandemic, the horrific fires, and then the murder of George Floyd. And I started to think about ways that I might be able to engage with the social consciousness and political strife that was going on. And so I called that piece, You Don't Need a Weatherman to Know Which Way the Wind Blows. And it really reflects all the reactions of so many people. And it comes from the Bob Dylan song. And it really is about the winds of change that is brought about by people acting up and acting out and and really working hard to make change. Yeah, much needed change. And I think you had mentioned it, it also, it's addressing that we need to pay attention. It's a beautiful piece. And it being so large in stature, I think just complements your, your statement as well. 
Lastly, you also created a series of pieces as an homage to people who helped you through what you call your period of obstacles. The series was called Personages. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yes. I think everyone goes through period obstacles. So I was just one of many, but I was sick and I went through treatment for a year and then took a year to recover from it. And I had no idea so many people loved me. And I oftentimes think that, that a health crisis can really wake you up and make you aware of what is important in, in the world and I decided to do an homage to all the people that had helped me get through this. And so it was inspired by these pieces that I had seen years and years and years ago at the Guggenheim of Louise Bourgeois grouping called the personages, uh, which is just a French word for figures. And so I would start by drawing, uh, putting a big piece of uh, cardboard on the floor, a four by eight foot piece, and then I would draw a shape and then I would see the shape next to it, which was the negative space. And then that would become another piece and then another piece after that. And eventually there are probably about 25 of those. And so besides being an homage to all that had got me through this, it was how you take an experience and make art out of it. And from the personal, I think it became universal because it really did teach me or make me think about the connectivity of all things and all beings. That's a beautiful sentiment and it's a beautiful way of expressing yourself. Anne Weber, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your art of mastering transitions with us on Angel City Culture Quest. And thank you for being here with us today. You are most welcome, and thank you for having me. To see Anne's work, go to annewebersculpture.com, and you can also find her on Instagram at annewebersculpture. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.